Hello everyone and welcome to the 417th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your host Mason, joined by my two co-hosts. First up, we have Spencer Howland back from vacation. And Spencer, time for our new segment where I ask you a question at the beginning of the episode so the listeners get to know you and your voice. And my question to you is, on your salads, would you rather have chicken or salmon on top? Chicken, but also I don't like cabbages. So if I'm going to have a salad, it has to be like a spinach or arugula salad. Ooh, I like spinach. And for those who don't know, cabbages include include things like broccoli. Broccoli is a cabbage. Any of the cabbage offspring I also don't enjoy. This is actually a genetic thing. You can listen to a podcast on this. It's uh, called, oh man, Every Little Thing, I think, covers this. Where it talks about how there is actually a genetic code in you to whether or not you like cabbages. And I have the one that I do not like it. Um, which means that I don't like broccoli or lettuce or cabbage. <laughs> Abe Stein, our other co-host. Abe, chicken or salmon on top of your salad? I gotta go salmon. I think chicken on salad. It's not where I want my chicken. Whereas when I feel like I'm eating salmon, I'm ready to eat some vegetables too. I feel like it's a whole, it, it's more cohesive deck building. I do think this question is interesting though, Mason, because I feel like salmon and chicken can go on anything. Mm-hmm. They're both like... They, yeah, they have really high right. utility for meats. They're the goat of the land and the sea, and that's why I put them in the head-to-head for the salad question. Because we had to figure out who was coming out on top. So, listeners, let us know. What do you think? But more importantly than that, we're going to be talking about Standard today. It's been a while since we've talked about Standard on the podcast. Let's be honest, it's been a while since anyone's talked about Standard on podcast. But we know there are still RCQs out there happening. There's still Moto Challenges. And there's probably you know your favorite content creators doing something on Arena as well. So we're going to go all over standard today on the podcast. But first, we have to do Always Improving. That is the main point of the show. And Spencer, it is your turn. What was your Always Improving moment this week? Yeah, so last week, uh, I missed the podcast because I was in Nashville getting barbecue with Mason. No, not really. I was in Nashville. I did get barbecue with Mason, but I actually was on a work trip. The work trip was actually for my job. So I was doing the hashtag Always Improving at the work level. But I got to do a lot of theory crafting and play a lot of standard while I was gone. Unfortunately, Matt never hit me up for Smash. And I was on Hotel Wi-Fi anyway, so it didn't matter. So I got to just play a ton of standard. And I did a lot of theory crafting in a few formats, whether it was standard, modern, and actually a little bit of Pioneer. I also got to play some Pioneer Leagues with Green Red Keezy Ramp. This is very different than the Green Red Ramp decks that people are playing now. And theory crafting is something that I think people don't do enough of in Magic. Um, we talk a lot on this show about like challenging your assumptions. And I think that when you're trying to theory craft like how something will play out, how matchups will play out, and then put you know pen to paper or cardboard onto the playmat, you get to actually do that after you have theory crafted. This happened a few times for me. One I realized that because of the metagame that currently existed in Standard, I believed that a previous Standard deck that I had spent a ton of work on at Brood would be really good. We'll talk about that later in the episode, and it came out to be true. It is quite good. And then in in Pioneer, there was a question that was posed about the validity of Spirits to me. And a lot of people said Spirits had a lot of bad matchups that I didn't believe were true. And I put pen to paper 
as well as putting, you know, cardboard to play mat. And I think that one, I think Spirits is like the hardest deck in Pioneer to play. I want to, I want to start with that. I, I actually think Mono Blue Spirits is insanely hard to play. I said that from the the day that I that I top four that one K with the or the three K or whatever it was with it. I was like, this is one of the hardest decks I've ever played, and I, I still believe that. I, I think the deck is basically impossible to play right. And I think that because of how hard it is, people are downplaying its strengths in Pioneer. But that's some of the theory crafting I did. And then finally, the other theory crafting that I did was at a team level where we were talking about combo control in Modern and its place in the format. Uh, Mason, you might want to jump on on this because I think you and I have a very strong disagreement about what combo control looks like in Modern and which combo control decks have an ability to maybe make some waves right now. But we were talking specifically about Team or Scape Shift at the four-color and three-color Archon decks. And I think they're really well-positioned right now. Team or Scape Shift specifically gains a lot of things that I think that the green-red Titan decks lose out on, including things like whether it's Remand or whether it's just winning counter wars against specific counterspell decks, having inevitability in the way that you win the game because of Volokit in a way that... Honestly, Amulet Titan does a really bad job at. There are lots of things that I think Team Escape Shift gets access to. Um, and the way that we compared it was actually with the four-color and three-color Archon decks where they also have this ability because of uh, Fable of the Mirror Breaker to win games in really interesting ways without ever having to combo off. So it's really fun to kind of talk with Matt and Quentin about this today. But yeah, that's kind of... Mario is improving. It is something that isn't talked about enough in Magic where you are challenging your assumptions and, and crafting these theories, but I did it a lot while I was busy this week. Yeah, that's always great. I mean, we talk a lot about on the show how we play a lot of games, but we also think about things way more than we play games, right? And so getting some time to kind of lean more in one direction than the other, I think is really good. And, you know, getting to kind of like challenge those things and get to really sort of flush those thoughts out is Really important. Uh, my always improving moment from this past week kind of comes from looking around and kind of if ever it's funny. It, it's almost uh, like a, a same thing as Spencer's, but the later part where I have a lot of thoughts about Pioneer and I played a lot with a lot of decks at the beginning, uh, like the beginning of like preparing for these sort of events coming up, and I kind of put them down, put a lot of work into Phoenix, thought about a lot of stuff, and then a lot has changed right since then. Things like Mono Green have changed the way they're kind of sideboarding a little bit, and their dominance in the metagame's going down. Things like Heroic have gone up. And I just wanted to kind of check and see, like, how that stuff actually done? And then, like, when playing things out, do they still sort of play the same way, even though they're changing drastically? So, like, a good example of this is Red Black, where before, when everyone first started talking about Red Black, you know, the deck was playing, like, four Kalidus main. I'm sorry, two Kalidus main and, like, two Chandra or two Soren, Kind of, like, four grindy cards at their top end. Now some people are really championing a build that plays like Hazards at the top end. And so you have like two of those maybe in like an extension of an extinction event or something along those lines. And having that sort of different end game and that different top end really changed out how the deck was being played. And when I first started with it, I actually loaded up the Dark Dwellers build of things. So I was like, oh, this looks interesting. So I tried that and I found how I was just kind of like barely killing people, but I was like kind of racing them a lot of time at the end. And so that really got me interested in checking out Hazaret. And then it's like, oh, okay, maybe I'm just thinking about this red-black deck the wrong way. And it got me to 
sort of go back into the lab again about theory crafting and being like, okay, red black is potentially really different than it was before. That really changes like the difference between Kalidus and Hazra in your deck is night and day on how your games are going to play out. And just also the way matchups go and certain things, you know, like Kalidus is a good response to mono green, mono green and leaves the metagame. Uh, or like falls back a little bit. Maybe you don't have Kalidus. Now, like the way that matchup plays out is really different. So just double check everything with too big events this weekend. I'm playing a 10K and a 5K for Modern Pioneer. So going through and doing that and just making sure everything's still kind of the way I thought it was before I kind of lock in a 75 and how I want to sideboard and that sort of stuff. So that was my uh, always improving moment from this last week. I think that's a really important thing to do, Mason. I really like how you're talking about, especially in Red Black, I know that we had talked about like Dark Dwellers versus Bloodthirsty Adversary. How is my grindy slot going to look? And I think that once you're playing a list that has Hazaret and following up on that, that's ma- making all of your decisions cohesive. So like, if I'm going to play Hazaret, I probably want the two mana card that I can just get out of my hand more often than the five mana card that's going to be a little grindier or make the bodies a little better than, you know, just the two, two, or three, three haste. It's really important to like, those small changes go a really long way in how the games are played and also how certain matchups play out. So that's, that's definitely really important. My always improving moment this week actually came while I was playing the standard challenge on Saturday morning, but not... I worked on standard a bit this week to make sure I was prepared for the episode, and I was playing standard challenge, and I realized that there were just like a month worth of RCQs that I had not given myself any time to plan for, because previously it was a lot easier before I started working earlier this month, office job, five days a week, that I, I had taken for granted how much freedom I had to schedule myself and uh, the ability that I had to manage my time. And so I've really, like, I sat down getting everything done over the weekend, and especially while I was playing the challenge between rounds, booking out my time for the magic events I'm going to be able to play. And that's something that I haven't had to do in a long time because of COVID and my availability with, like, college. It was a lot easier to jam whatever and worry about it that day. But now it's a a lot harder. I have a lot more on my plate. And that was something I hadn't really realized before, but I kind of, for the first time, laid out my process for when it is I'm going to schedule things, how it is I'm going to be able to play, and, and engage in the way I need to. And that really felt like, like by the end of the day and by the end of the weekend, I felt like I had complete control of my time in a way that I hadn't before, even when I had more of it. So it was really um, kind of like a an out-of-the-box always improving. It had a little little to do with my in-game things, but a lot to do with my ability to show up to tournaments and that you know making sure i was gonna know the events i'm playing sourcing the cards when I, what my timelines are and stuff and that uh that is going to be really really helpful to me for forever so it's always important to take time for that kind of organizational stuff and hope others choose to do that as well i i really like that one i think that the number of times where i see people just question like what are the local events in my area what are the formats and stuff like that I am a little behind, but I actually manage a, a Google Calendar for the Utah competitive events, whether it's the 1Ks or the RCQs. And I think it's a great resource for people. And the fact that Wizards has flubbed so hard on Event Finder for the RCQs has made it really hard for people. So I would encourage you to maybe find a local Facebook group or a Discord to help you understand, like, what are your available RCQs? What's coming up? Stuff like that. Additionally, like you might want to look into for a lot of people in a lot of situations, what are the 
online events like for you? Uh, because we have auto qualifiers now on Arena. We have PTQs on MTGO. There's a lot of things that you can do to qualify, even if you're not in a situation where you can go out during... I would call it like an in-between time in the pandemic where the... I don't want to say death rate because that sounds so bad, but like it's the COVID's a lot less deadly now as long as like you are not high risk. Right. And so it makes it easier to run events, but that doesn't mean that everybody gets to go. And if you're one of those people that is still not able to go because you're still in that category, like I would encourage you to look at opportunities, whether it be arena or magic online, because there's still a ton that you can do. But additionally, you should help those around you to do what Abe's talking about, where you get to understand what is available to them. We, we Magic's a really is a lot funner of a game when everyone is lifting each other up to attend. Those yeah, events. definitely. Uh, like a pivotal thing for me was like I was able to, uh, and I have been able to for a bit now, like source the Pioneer deck I want to play, all the cards that I need. That's pretty easily available with my play group, and we have a calendar running for all the events within like an hour drive bus. But like. You know, being able to plan out and be like, oh, I need to pre-register so I don't get capped out. I I know who I'm carpooling with, etc. All of that is, like, really important to figure out if you're going to going to play these things, I think. And so taking the time to actually do it if uh, if you need to and making it a priority for a little bit of time that, that you have sometimes is just what you need to do. And it was what I needed to do, and it's definitely going to make it easier now that I know exactly when it is I'll be able to do it. I'll be able to, like, check in with my calendar, like, once a month. And that's something I've never never been doing before yeah that's big and helpful do you know what's big and helpful going to patreon.com and uh being a patron of the show the show will always be free but if you want to give back to the show go to patreon.com slash ccmtg one of the perks that's the patreon shout out aaron thank you for becoming a patron of the show and abe do you know what we have spencer back which means we get that proper gg lehigh ad I had to spend a lot of my weekend at Gamefield Lehigh this week. The support that this show has from Jordan, the owner, both in the fact that they are allowing us to commentate from the Easy Game Media Twitch account, from the fact that like they're allowing us to. One of the things that Jordan wanted to know is like, are Abe and Mason interested in doing coverage with you? If that is so, how will it work? And it's like, yes and yes. Like, it just has to be the right weekends. Like I'll continue to like fill up a stable, but two weeks ago I talked about dreams coming true and I, I got to do commentary this weekend. I got to set it up. Uh, he had staff members moving stuff around for me to set up a commentary space. He's going to buy. He asked me, give me a list of equipment that you need to do this. Additionally, like this is the last episode where the 10% discount is available for Patreons only. We'll be changing the code and, and giving it out to the people, the people it is really cool to have a sponsor who is so engaged with us. One of the things that came up is, you know, whether we want cash or credit on the sponsorship, whether we, how much credit would they give us? And it's pretty amazing. And I am just like spewing stuff out here because I'm, I'm so happy with being able to support a place that I believe truly sports just overall competitive magic. We had two other RCQs this weekend in Utah, and there were still 20 teams. I don't know if you know, Abe. Do you know what the uh, event was that I covered I did this tune in for a bit of it. It was a team event, right? Yeah, but do you know the format? So one seat was sealed, one seat was Pioneer, and one seat was Modern. And then the top eight, a draft happens. So 
They built a sealed deck as a team. Then they had a sealed seat, a pioneer seat, and a modern seat. Then they drafted. They got to build their draft deck together, talk about the draft, then have the topic. Like, it's just a sick freaking format. Like, it's just cool. You got to appease so many players, types of players, competitive players, feed competitiveness. I just, if you haven't checked out gglehigh.com, you should use the link in our show notes. It kicks us something back. And next week, we'll give you guys a discount code. Awesome. That's important. Also, you know, Spencer, they're helping us with the CC into G Open, which is Pioneer. Yeah. And so they're putting in $500 short credit straight up. And then with entries and everything, we have a scaling price support. So if you want to join that, you can get in there by being a diamond level patron, which is $10 a month, which is the same as the cost to enter the tournament. So if you're going to enter the tournament and play, might as well head over to Patreon and get all those sort of benefits as well. Yes, to the Discord, we got a lot of people talking over there about stuff. And I am sure as we get closer, to the actual event, we're going to be seeing a lot of people, a lot of people talking about Pioneer getting ready for the CCMTG event. So if you're wanting to do that, make sure to join that and do that all of the rigmarole there. One of the things that we were talking about when we were getting a new sponsor was, hey, like we want to do this event. We want to support Magic on a global scale, not just locally. Are you interested in that? And it was, unquestionably, Jordan said yes. Wanted said, what did you what did you do before and we all were doing a lot, sacrificing a lot ourselves to try and make these events happen. And Jordan didn't want us, the owner didn't want us to do that. He's like, no, I will do that. You guys make the event happen. I don't know if you guys have checked out you know, their inventory yet, but like, it's well stocked. That $500 store credit that's guaranteed in the price pool, even if we only get the eight people, is going to go a long way. So don't forget to check out that. Yeah, and that event will be happening 8-13, so August 13th, which is Saturday, 10 a.m. Mountain Time. That's a little 12 uh, Eastern, a little 11 Central. Y'all know the deal. So you can check that out. If you want to see more about that, head over to Patreon.com. But it is time for Standard, 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 the format that got everyone, I mean, I assume got everyone here in the magic, really. Outside of Abe with his <laughs> casuals, commander, commander, kitchen table, you know. Yeah. Actually, Abe started commander. That's a little known fact. Um, but we can talk about that a different day. It's a true story. I wouldn't lie to you on the podcast. But we're going to be talking all about standard today on the show. Typically, for this sort of thing, we do like a power rankings type episode. So if you listen to like the modern and pioneer one recently, we go over all the data. We talk about everything. We assign the points, blah, blah, blah. But we decided to do it a little differently this week so we're actually just gonna have like a freeform open conversation about standard I and mean, some stuff and kind of work through everything because there are events going on but and there are stuff that we could look at but it might be a little better to talk about this especially since there's been so little focus on actually standard it probably devolves in this sort of conversation anyways so with that being said we kind of need to start with a question that and gets posed a lot in magic is the data useful that we're getting from Magic Online. And Spencer, I, I see you ain't excited to talk about this one. What, what do you think about the, the data and your listeners of the podcast? You know, they hear about how the standard challenges are 60 people every weekend. It's just the same 60 people. What do you think? Oh, man. I was not first on the show notes. I was not prepared to go first, but I, I'll go. Your, your smile had um, me, it had me felt drawn I, to you. I, <laughs> I, just, I just think 
It's tough. I actually am considering playing the Sunday challenge this week, for example. I think that I question the validity of empty geodata right now for standard. Not for everything, but for standard, it's really weird. There's a couple of reasons, but I think there's a real lack of stress on the format. And so something that ends up happening, right, is like black-white is a deck that gets to pop up where it does a lot of the things that Esper does, but is hyper-focused on targeting something. And you can only hyper-focus on targeting something when you understand a metagame. And for what it's worth, I, you know, we had one of the two challenges that happened last week that were almost entirely Jeskai, right? But the other challenge was almost entirely not Jeskai. And it's this, like, ebb and flow that happens when there's a clear best deck that... I don't think is fair to the format. Yes, I think the, the, the data is valuable. Like, if you're trying to win a challenge, looking at the past four challenges is really helpful. If you're trying to win your local event, picking a deck that did well in a challenge is probably really helpful. Like, there's a lot that you can gain from that information. But, like, for me, I think about those players that are going to a standard RCQ. There, there are some of those happening throughout the U.S. and throughout the world. I don't think that MTGO data is as helpful in that situation. And I worry that we are basing our opinions too much on that. Just like a few, if you had asked me two years ago, I would have said we were basing it too much on ladder play. There has to be a medium in which there's just not big standard events, right? And like because of that, you have to take everything with a grain of salt. That doesn't mean that there's not value in it, though. Yeah, I'm kind of in a very similar space to Spencer when it comes to all of that stuff, where it's like, there are not a lot of standard events with things on the line. They're very infrequent these days, especially in the States. And as such, these are like some of the only events that you can play, so it's some of the only place to look at stuff. So even if, uh, and I agree with Spencer, there's like the incentives to play it are very low, and the incentives to innovate are really low when you have something like Jeskai that just continuously does so well, it's so baseline powerful, and you can just kind of play that every Sunday. That can be your thing, you know? Like, if you 3-3, three, three, then, like, you're going to be up a couple bucks, you know? Like, every time you do one win better, it goes up a significant amount. And so, I, I think that, you know, the data is helpful, but, like, with everything, you can't just follow it all the way. You have to think about, like, the other stuff going on with it. Abe, what do you think? Yeah, I think the the data from goldfish is really important i think it probably will mirror a lot of what you'll see in your paper rcqs if you play them or any paper standard tournaments mostly because i think a lot of people who wind up in a position to get in the standard will look at it and it'll kind of become an information cascade of like well this is the information you know magic online is the best source of data we have but i think it's important that if you're really going to take standards seriously and especially throughout listening this episode you remember that data and Magic Online data, despite being a very large sample, isn't the truth. It is just data, right? It is just the observations. And so you can do a lot with the observations of, okay, well, you know, half the field plays Jeskai every week and it around half the field in the top 32 is Jeskai every week. So it's a good deck and people think people like keep on playing it. They think it's really good, but that doesn't mean that there's not room for you to you know, find something that makes sense for you to play that isn't that. It doesn't mean it's the correct thing to do for you. And it's going to be much more important if you want to succeed in standard to understand what's going on in the games more than just copying 
whatever deck is like copying Jeskai Hinata, not knowing how to play Jeskai Hinata is not going to automatically start winning you a bunch of matches that any of the other standard decks would win you. I think is probably the most important thing to remember. It was a month ago now, right? When we had the pro tour where I was super low on Jeskai Hinata, literally went on the podcast after playing 24 hours of standard and was like just crushing Jeskai Hinata players saying this deck is as bad as it was before don't play it. The next episode that I was on, I came on and said, I was wrong. You need to know how to play this deck, but it's actually significantly better. And Abe, I want to challenge you on something because I think that because of the nature of how RCQs are run, it actually won't be the case that if you're running into a standard RCQ, that people are basing their knowledge off of the MTGO metagame. Because I think that the reason a store would run a standard RCQ is because they have a standard presence. I mean, I have a standard RCQ okay. in my area, and this is it might just be my experience. And I'm in a very, very highly competitive area. There's like 25 RCQs or whatever in the few months that we have. And there's just a lot of game stores. There's one standard RCQ, and it is the store that is the most out of touch with what people play competitively. I also think that there's going to be a bunch of people who maybe don't play standard or not part of that community, but are interested in, in the organized play system and do want to engage with RCQs and want to play as many as there are. And will be in the position of looking at those decks. And those people might make up a solid like third to half of your field. But I do agree with you. I think that there's there's going to be more than just... I wouldn't expect everyone who shows up to your RCQ to just be playing, you know, Jeskai Hinata or Black White or whatever. I wouldn't expect them to just pick a top tier deck. Because I do think that the standard format is one with a lot of diversity. And there's a lot of room to find things you like in it. Like I, I you know, top 32 the challenge on Saturday with a brew of a friend of mine that was just a gruel beatdown deck. I like playing decks like that. I wanted to do something unique in the format. I didn't want to just engage in a way that was normal. And, you know, I looked at the data. I knew that I was going to play against a certain deck a lot or certain types of decks a lot. And then, you know, found a way to attack that. But that's the use of data is knowing what things might look like using this predictive factor, not using it as like, you know, an absolute of what things will be. And I think that's just the most important thing to talk about when it comes to is the data useful is like, yes, it's useful. But it's not the law. And there will be a lot of people who treat it like the law. They're going to be like, I can't believe it. I only played against Jeskai like two times in my six round tournament. And it's supposed to be like everyone plays it. It's like, well, it's just not that way every time. There are people who have different motivations. Yeah. And that's something you see happen uh, a lot with other formats, right? It's like they go to their modern RCQ and you're like, I was told they only play four color and living it. And it's like, well, uh, you know, a lot of people like Murktide decks, a lot of people like this, you know, Merfolk, like, there's just a, a lot of people that play Magic for a lot of different reasons and like different things, and it's not always, always about getting that point, you know, 2% more. So it's important to remember that. But let's kind of talk about, so we kind of mentioned, you know, the data, and, you know, and the data, if you kind of look at it, as we will later, there's like a lot of Jeskai Hinata, there's the Boris Aggro deck, there's Orzhov, there's some Mono Green. Has this kind of been reflective of our experiences and able to kind of let you carry on here because you just mentioned you played the challenge you played gruel you know you went three three it was just kind of similar to your experience kind of the just those four decks i think the one thing that i'll say is that it i do kind of feel that jeskai's presence is a bit overstated and its ability to be dominant is a bit overstated there are weaknesses in the deck it just has a lot of things that cover it because naturally it's going to play a lot of the more efficient interactive spells in the format to back up its game plan. A lot of the ways you would want to attack that deck to get under its game plan can just be 
pretty easily picked apart by like a well-placed make disappear or dragon's fire and this you know the Hanada deck has access to that even if it won't do it every time so i think that even though the best deck quote unquote is Hanada, i don't think it's like such a dominant deck that i would be like upset if i was in a position where i for some reason could never register Jeskai Hanada. um which i think is kind of what a lot of the time that I see people talk about standard or think about standard, what the perception of the format is. But also, like I was saying before, I think that because the goldfish data and what people think about the format says that that's what level zero is, what people should just be playing is, that a lot of that will happen, which is not what I experienced playing on, on Moto this weekend. But I think that what if I played every standard challenge, I probably would see over time that I did play against just more Jessica Hinata because... That is the perception and people do just play it, even if it's not the only choice. Spencer, what about you? How did you engage with standard leading into this episode and what kind of was your experience like with it? Well, I started by just trying different stuff. So uh, whether it be Jessica Hanada, whether it be Boros, Warzoff Control, Mono Green, Mono White, um, I, I played a lot of different standard decks. Eventually, I got a pretty good grasp on the format and I switched to... If you followed me last time season, you know I was really high on this deck that I called Bloodstorm, which was a Storm of the Festival Blood in the Snow deck. And I have basically just been playing that for the last couple of days because it's actually kind of insane this meta game. I do think that the challenges have been indicative of a few things. So one, I think that Jessica Hanada is a really good deck. I think one of the reasons that makes it so good is that it gets to win on the back of solo or multiple Goldspan Dragons even better than Gruul got to not that long ago. You might be like, whoa, that seems crazy. Like, that was just a Goldspan Dragon deck. But actually, as somebody who's now played a ton of Jessica Hanada, like, it is so easy because Goldspan Dragon does the same thing that Hanada does in making your two mana spells cost one mana in the form of treasure. And because of that, you have a ton of consistency and the way that the decks have become built offer that consistency. And the second that second Goldspan Dragon comes down or that Hanada comes down and you get to do it all for basically free, it's really hard to combat. Now, with that being said, I think there's a clear tier one. I don't think that people will agree with me. I think that uh, clear tier one here is Jeskai Hanada, Boros Aggro, and Mono Green Aggro. I think those are the three best decks. I thought that when Wizards said like Mono Green was doing really well on Arena and that we were disrespecting it, I was like, you guys are crazy. This deck's not good anymore. I was wrong. They were right. I have now played it since then. It is quite good. Um, in fact, in the Jeskai Hanada Challenge this weekend, it, I think it had two copies of the Tanada had four, and then there were two other decks. Monogreen's quite good. I, I think those are the three best decks. I think Black White, I'm just going to call it Black White Derek, for lack of a better term, I think is a clear, a right under the, it might be like 1.5, it might even be above tier two, but I think those are the top four decks. And I think that that is reflective of the data. Now, I agree with Abe, I think that Hanada is a little overrepresented. But I think that it's for a good reason. It's because it gets free wins in addition to being consistent. And that's just going to lend itself to people just playing it, especially on things like Magic Online, 
where they're using a rental service and can play any deck they want. If I can double back to something you said there that I thought was really interesting, just about standard as a whole. We talked on the the PT episode about how the Grixis deck kind of looked like the most efficient version of the mid-range decks. But I think that, especially hearing you talk about your experience playing Hinata and also playing against Hinata over the weekend, I realized that actually Jeskai Hinata gets to be the most efficient mid-range deck at a certain stage in the game because of Goldspan Dragon and Hinata making all of its spells cost one instead of two while not having to be constrained by being yeah. one mana spells. And I think that's something that initially, because I agreed with you, I thought that Hinata was a little overrated uh, coming out of the Pro Tour, but after seeing it in practice and experiencing it, I think it's something that I overlooked in how they were actually leveraging these cards to be the most efficient deck without sacrificing other places. You and I were excited yeah. about the gen deck, right, Abe? Goldfish has the gen deck split for some reason. I looked at the way that they split these lists, and it didn't make sense to me, but it would actually be the number five deck. If you're playing on ladder, you've played against this deck a lot, but Jund actually is probably the top of that tier two list. It has a ton of ways to build it, things like that. And while Grixis Vampires is great, has a lot of efficiencies, it is up there in that tier two echelon. There's a ton of ways to build things like Jund that Grixis doesn't have the flexibility into. One of the nice things about Jessica Hanada is all you care about is that you have flexible two-mana cards within a three-color spread, right? That's really easy. The thing about Grixis is because you're locked into vampires, you can't, like, adjust your creature spread in order to combat whatever's going on. Just, I guess, before we get into the challenge, I'll talk about my experience. I started at the bottom of Bronze Ladder, and, you know, I haven't played Arena in a while. I think it's good to be with Man Traders, but... um. It is interesting because uh, I did play against some Hinata along the way. I got up to like, you know, almost platinum or whatever playing. And I as I got higher, I started playing against the decks that we're talking about more. But I played against just a lot of interesting stuff along the way. And it just kind of reminded me of like how sick magic can be when you don't have data. Like if you just don't know better, for lack of a better term, magic is such a sick game. Like I, I played against so many like cool decks and like like, I even played a couple games with my Plow deck that I talked about a long time ago, where I would just, like, you know, like, I would play during lunch, and, like, it was just kind of really cool to just, like, play without uh, having so much pressure at times. But it does lead to weird things like this. So, I did play against all the decks we've talked about so far, the Boros, the Orzov, the Green, and the Jeskai a little bit, and it was all, like, good and reasonable. I can see totally different reasons why to play all of those different decks, but it was kind of cool that as I'm sure I get hit platinum and diamond or whatever, and eventually Mythic, I would hit more and more Hinata. But it w- it was really cool just to kind of see like, oh yeah, there's like a lot of other stuff people could be doing in the format that for whatever reason they're not, and whether that's incentives or power level. There's just a lot of really cool stuff you can be exploring right now. And you know, as a bit of all the old decks that sometimes people still play despite them not being the best right now. Challenge results though. So when we look over these challenge results, uh, we have two of them to look at. Uh, if I look at top 32, there's more no things. Actually, I don't know if you're on this one. You're not. Uh, but anyways, uh, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff, right? So in the one from the 17th of July, there's, I believe, five Jeskai decks on the cross side. Yeah, there's five Jeskai decks, two Boris Aggro, and a Mono Green. And we've... Uh, I had that one wrong then early on the show. I apologize. 
No worries. It might be the other one. Might also be that way. I have not actually looked close enough. No, that one. That one's one by Black White. Oh, one, it is one by Black White. Yeah, you're right. Anyways, all good. It happens. Regardless, there's a lot of interesting stuff here, and we've talked about the Jessica deck a little bit already, and we kind of mentioned like a strengthening deck, but we we've mentioned only in passing the Boros deck, and just kind of what this deck's trying to do. So let's kind of take maybe a second to talk about Boros because I think Boros is playing one of the what I would argue is one of the best cards in Standard, and has been secretly the whole time it's been in Standard. Uh, and that's Luminarch Aspirant. And it's kind of going to be like a red-white curve-out deck that uses cards like Luminarch Aspirant in the middle turns, and then eventually hits things like Thundering Raiju and various burn cards in order to kind of close out the game later. And it's kind of the traditional 1-2-3 curve-out deck. What do you all think about this Boris Aggro deck? Because it seems to be doing really well and has a lot of things that are really good about it in, you know, in comparison to other decks in the format. I have a lot of thoughts on Boris Agro, but it actually combines with my thoughts on Jeskaya. And I, I kind of just loop around for this question of the challenge results. If you are on the play with Boris Agro, especially against Jeskaya Hanada, they can't win. If you are on the play with Boris Agro against the green deck, you become, you go from, I can't win the game to a, he- a favorite, which means that like, that should not ever be favored against a deck with three mana four fours because of the way that the deck plays out, has a chance. I, I think the Boros deck is quite good. Uh, I also had not been playing Arena in a while. I went from bronze to gold off of the entire deck of this deck. It was a three-hour stretch. It was not close. I also think, for what it's worth, that because of the way that Jeskai Hanada is built, and because of the way that this deck is built, it actually squeezes out Esper. And I, I want to talk about why. Because Esper, we have not mentioned yet, if you look at the Goldfish data, you look at, I think, like the last five challenges, you'll see sprinklings of Esper. The problem is, is that Esper is built on the back of the in-between these two things. And all of the decks that are trying to beat these two things at the same time just are naturally going to beat Esper. And that's bad news, Bears. It just means that everyone has natural game against you. And then additionally, Esper does not have a good game against Boros. It pressures Esper in a way that Esper doesn't like. And I think that's a huge boon to Boros. Where it gets to squeeze out a deck that would typically prey on its bad matchups, and then it gets to prey on its bad matchups instead. I think that's a huge boon for Boros. The, yeah, the Jessica deck's been impressive to me. When I had a look over this one, this looks like a lot of Jeskai. It's like almost hard to see the other decks <laughs> just because this is one of the ones where it's kind of it broke the way where everything is kind of you know is a lot of just guy the vampires deck is like the one other thing we haven't really talked about that we do see pop up here and this is something we were kind of higher on and excited about around the time of the pro tour you know we saw team channel firewall play it abe do you have any thoughts about the grixis kind of vampires low to the ground deck it's now kind of removed from the pro tour yeah so i think that where the Grixis deck shine, and we talk, I talked about efficiency not too long ago in this episode uh, alone, but it being efficient from the onset means that it's naturally a little better equipped to handle some of the more aggressive decks, which are kind of preying on the fact that in order to get to a controlling position, decks need to reach a certain threshold, and if it can get out ahead on board before they're able to start using you know, multiple spells in a turn, they can kind of snowball a win that way, especially on the play. The Grixis deck has way more to handle those situations, and it is 
in being a lot leaner on the front end, even if it's not as strong in the mid to late game as some of the other decks. Uh, but by being lean on the front end, I think it's naturally well positioned to handle the aggressive decks as the mid-range decks go. I think that it's it's one of the best positions to handle a metagame that is maybe heavy on red, white, or green. Just by the way, it's it's built. Uh, but otherwise, I think that it is kind of in a in a squeeze of getting pushed out by the decks that are trying to go over the top and by uh, Jeskai Hanada, which is able to kind of dwarf it with the Hanada Opus stuff. What do you think of the challenge results, Spencer, after kind of like looking over this and talking about some of the other stuff? What do these kind of say to you? What are you kind of getting from it? Man, I love our friends that play the challenges a lot. We have a lot of them, so I don't want this to... Just first of all, I'm going to be honest. I think I think they're BS. I think that we put too much stock in challenge results in standard. As somebody who's played a lot of this format, I think that the reason that... I'm going to use Derek as an example. Misplaced Ginger, for those who don't know. Uh, if you get the chance to unfollow him and follow Mason, please do so. But I think that the reason that, that Black White did so well, and honestly has done well since, is because people are not willing to give up on their free wins, even when their free wins start to disappear. Obviously, we had this weekend, one of the two challenges was almost entirely just guy. But the fact that the other one was very much not that, when it's probably like 40 of the same 60 people, should tell you that it is not a Hanada problem. It is an adaptability problem. I can assure you, as somebody who has tried a lot of different things in Standard, I think Boros is good against Hanada. I think Black White is good against Hanada. I think my deck is good against Hanada. And it's not a Hanada problem. What Abe and I are saying is true, that Hanada still just gets to be consistent and be the best deck. I think that you can attack this Standard metagame if you want to. I actually think there's a lot of room to do it. I don't think Rix's Vampires is the answer, for example. I think that actually opens you up to a lot of problems, whether it be mono red and mono green. The thing is, is the Grixis Vampire deck is very good at squeezing out a deck that already exists, right? It's very good against Esper. And that deck is already squeezed out. What we saw from the Pro Tour is that it's weak against Jund, the other best mid-range deck. So I don't think Grixis is the answer. For Jund, you're like, okay, can I tag the format from a Jund perspective? I would assume the reason that we don't see Jund winning all these challenges is because it has a bad Jeskai matchup. I personally have not tried it a bunch, but I can't see how Jund combats here. Like, you could do the same thing that, like, you know, some of these other decks are doing. I played against a lot of Jund decks on Arena, for example, that are playing main deck um, Raven People Mint. That's certainly a way, but, like, the problem is, is the second that they play Goldspan Dragon instead, that Raven People looks really stupid. So, to me, like, Jund also starts to get squeezed out. So, that means that you have to go. You have to have a mid-range game that also goes bigger. And I think it's actually the reason that we see, for example, like, I don't think the Teamer deck is very good. I know that people who love Spencer Halland might not like hearing that. But, like, the reason that does good makes sense. It gets to play a mid-range game plan that goes bigger than Hanada, that Hanada has trouble with, and then get wins that way. The thing is, is that what you want to do is find a deck that is good against Hanada and Boros that happens to be a mid-range deck that goes big. That's a way to attack this format. 
The other thing that you can do is be a fast deck that disrupts easily, easily like Derek did, right? Where you don't need to actually take anything other than their disruption spells. And then by the time that they play a Hanada, why does it matter? I've already got nine power on board. Like you can tap down my stuff, but I just have a two mana removal spell for your Hanada anyway. I, I mentioned kind of earlier in the show, and Spencer kind of mentioned it there, where it's like a player problem. I think it, and you kind of mentioned this too, where it's like, the incentives aren't there. And it's just really hard, I think, for a lot of people to like want to put that time in when they get so much for doing so little work, you know? And they're just like, yeah, I could do these things and I could do that, but like I've got, you know, like a modern RCQ or NRG or something coming up and I've got school and I've got work and I really want to see the new season of The Incredibles, you know? And it's just like they, they just they watch, they just want to do something else, right? And so it's really hard to be like, yeah, I, I could spend like seven hours, eight hours grinding, staying and figuring something out for this weekend. If I do that, is it actually going to be worth it? And if it doesn't go well, am I okay with like having done that? Would I have fun? And so it's a really hard place to be. A- as for the format as like a whole thing and not like a bigger picture, why people do the things they do, it seems like just just guys like such a strong baseline that even though it is beatable, it just like. So, I mean, a lot of people are trying to beat it. Like, I go and I look through the challenge results and, like, you know, I see people like Shadows 2005, who I know is someone from Canada, who's, like, you know, a 19-year-old kid who plays a lot of Magic, and he often won't do something like Jeskai Control. I see him playing Boros Aggro, you know, and doing well in one of the events. And, like, people are trying to beat the deck, but, you know, it's Magic, and decks like this, if they, you know, hit the right matchups and the right draws, are really, really hard to beat. And even if you have a bad matchup against something, you can sometimes overpower them. So I, I think that Just Guy is just so, it's so easy just to fall back on that. And, you know, we're, we're near the end of the format's life, too. You know, we're about a month and a couple weeks from the new set dropping. You know, spo- spoiler or preview starts soon. What is the rotation? Do you know? Like what sets leave? Yeah, talk, talk to the listeners about it before. I, we should have put this in the show notes, but like, where are we at? Well, so the, the sets that are staying, which might be an easier way to think about it, is the two Anastrad sets, the Kamigawa set, and the Kapina set. And then the first Dominaria set will be the beginning of it. So that will be the, the fifth set in standard. So things like Kaldheim, Strixhaven, Zendikar, and AFR, Forgotten Realms, are all leaving standard. And so, you know, with that comes some pretty big implications and changes to the format. You know, things like Lair of the Hydra, which we have saw be a big player. We've seen Din the Bugbear. We've seen Hall of the Storm Giants. We've seen all these sort of cards, these lands really affect things. We've seen cards like Luminarch Aspirant be a huge player in Standard for its entire time. Things like that are just going to be gone. Uh, Expressive Iteration is gone. Goldspan, Dragon, Chariot. These are all leaving the format, and they will not be returning, probably. <laughs> so... Goldspan Dragon and Expressive Iteration <laughs> reprints in the next set. Let's yeah, you have the Phyrexian Goldspan Dragon. Yeah. <laughs> it makes Phyrexian Stop. treasures. You have to spend two life to get your two mana. But uh, yeah, like... Step it off. Let's go. Let's go. Let's Easy two. game. Unbeatable. But yeah, like, there are just not a lot of incentives. So when I look at the challenge results, I look at things, it's like, you can totally beat Jeskai or whatever. I'm sure that if there was another Pro Tour we would see decks do well against Jeskai in various different forms. And it might even just be like hard targeting for a weekend type thing. But there's a lot of room, but not a lot of incentive. So I'm a big Jeskai believer and I'm a big uh, Boros believer. But I think those are two of the decks that are, I guess, Monogreen 2 kind of is, where it's just kind of 
they're streamlined and they do their thing and they're really, really consistent. And yeah, you can beat them if you want to. Mason, but, uh, is this the first time we agreed on this standard format? I actually disagree. I just think that like picking any of those three decks, you can't go wrong. Like they're just good. Yeah, like, I mean like there's an old JRT quote which is like uh, bears don't have a fail rate or whatever. And that really is kind of the green deck and the Boros deck's philosophy. It's kind of like, yeah, we got strong creatures on rate, and they attack, and like, you know, that's really good. I actually think Mono Green would have just completely, it's Invoke the Ancients is the name of that card. You like the four fives? Yeah. Yeah, that literally, I have played Mono Green and Jeskai Hanada. I've never seen Jeskai Hanada win after that card is resolved. Like, actually zero times. And if they did not get access to that card, so monogreen would have fallen off. Like, it would not be good. So, like, if you're questioning, for what's worth, this is a perfect episode to talk about this, whether you're supposed to play main deck Renin 7 or that card, I will tell you which one right now. You are supposed to play Invoke. Just unquestionably. Yeah, it is crazy to kind of look at the monogreen deck compared to, you know, when Abe and I were testing with Invitational uh, and how it looked there and so much lower to the ground and having to respect the mirror versus now, where... You know, we just have three five drops that makes them four fives. You know? It's kind of a crazy thing. Abe, what do you think about it looking at the format through the lens of the challenges? Yeah, I think the challenges have been, and we've talked about it a bit as kind of like a thread through the episode, is like how much is this data worth? And I think the format has been kind of tainted by an initial showing of like one event where everyone who did well was, all, was playing Hinata, but they also only played against Hinata. So, like, the best Hinata players rose to the top. And that's just kind of, like, what it felt like the standard challenges became. And I think that at a certain point, once that's the case for three or four weeks, that just is what the format is. But I don't think that that's necessarily how it had to be. I think that if there were incentives, as we've talked about, I think that things would have changed. I mean, I think there's even desire among the players who play the challenge every weekend. And you can see it from, like, the Saturday to the Sunday usually how people change either what they're playing entirely, like Boros Agro won on Saturday in hands of Medvedev, then it went from being, you know, kind of in the same second rung of the top 32 and in, in like what was played going from five people playing it to nine people placing with it, almost doubling its presence in the top 32 the next day. So I think there's a lot to think about and what that means as far as what's going on in the format. Like, yes, Jeskai Hinata winds up being like 13 of the 32 decks that get published out of every challenge. But also, I think it's solidly like 40-ish percent of what is being registered in these challenges. So when you see three, four, five Hinata decks, six Hinata decks in the top eight, like that's going to happen sometimes when that deck just shows up as half the room. If it's half the room, it should expect to convert at least half the top eight. And only half the top eight if it's like performing at expectation, right? If it's just coin flipping a bunch, half of them will get in. So, yeah, I think it's just important to remember that and to think about what, like, if you really want to win in standard, think about what's going on in the games and how it is you're choosing to attack it. Things like the Teamer Titan of Industry deck, it's choosing to be the thing that is going so far over the top that it's shutting down the other mid-range decks. Or, you know, Boros, or like the rule deck that I played, which is just trying to play the game to get entirely under the mid-range decks. I think it's just important to know that, you know, even even in these Moto Grinders who are playing a ton of Jeskai and choosing to play Jeskai a bunch, they are making decisions to change decks. It's just that things have been this way for so long, it's hard to, hard to really know. But 
you can do a lot once you have the knowledge of what the format's like. And I think that's may, way more important and what I would look at really for the challenge results is what's changing week to week. And ultimately, you know, if you see people making card choices to adapt to that metagame come the next week, especially late in standard formats, that's where most of the information you're going to get that's useful is. It's going to be looking at how people are adjusting the things that they're expecting and the trends in the format. People are starting to play more cheap removal spells or more counter magic, what that means, and kind of uh, leaning into how you can exploit them. Awesome. Well, with that kind of conversation out of the way, we've kind of discussed the format. What would we all play in the next challenge, I guess, is the next thing to bring up. And uh, I've already said it a second ago, but, you know, I, I think I lean just guy red-white and Mono Green's also quite good. Uh, Abe, what would you play? I play red-white. I think that deck is really, really impressive, and I think it's just also a play style I really like. I think it, it plays a lot of a lot of the cards that I would expect to, to or hope to have a future, and it's really strong. Oh man, I, the, my answer has changed three times over the last three weeks. So it's if you had asked me two weeks ago, I would have said red white. I, I think that that deck is the best deck on the play and standard by a substantial margin. If you win the coin toss in game one, I think that you are extremely favored to win the match. Um, I also think that it that red white happens to have some of the best sideboard plans on the draw, even where you get to bring in things like Showdown of the Scalds or you know, the, the better removal spells that you have access to depending on the matchup. But uh, if you would ask me a week later, I would have said Mono Green. I think that Mono Green is probably the most underrated deck in Standard. It is probably the most consistent deck in Standard, even beating out Jeskai Hanada for consistency, which is hard to do. I think Jeskai Hanada is extremely consistent. However... And that's what I posted on Twitter, by the way. If you had asked me literally five days, five, four days ago, I posted a mono green list that I was happy to play. Because I had put in that work, I went back to a brew, and that's what I would play. I would play Jun Bloodstorm. I think that it is good against mono green. It is good against Boros. It is good against Jeskai Hanada. It has game against Esper and Black White. I am literally considering playing the challenge on Sunday to just play this deck, so... That is what I would play. Awesome. Yeah, the, the standard format was very interesting to kind of go in and cover, especially with us near kind of the end of its life. You know, like, just obviously no new sets. We just talked about rotation happening, you know, in about four weeks here. And that has, you know, huge implications for everything. And it's kind of interesting to see this and starting to look back over everything. From the beginning of the format where the Lear, Alvarin's Epiphany stuff really dominated standard to the really awesome, ever-shifting Kamigawa standard, uh, which eventually like ended up on the Orzov stuff, to eventually where we are now, you know, with like kind of back to Goldspan Dragon and Jeskai Hanada with some of the other stuff along the way still being there at the end. So if you would ask me and Abe after the Pro Tour if we would just not talk about Lear on this episode. I think we both would have given you insane odds. Like, just actually insane odds. I'm not trying to brag, but my 3-3 friend made it into Boros deck. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> a little a little rate monster, you know? That's <laughs> Just a little a little haste to the team. Have you ever give a Luminarch Aspirin haste? Lear win world. Anyways, I mean, what do you know? Like, what is winning worlds? I should, I should have brought this up. I what? The uh, it's more like it participated... Anyways, that is it for the main topic of today's episode, but we still have the Patreon question, which is something you get to do by going to patreon.com slash ccmtg. 
Uh, we mentioned it earlier in the show, but one of the perks is you get to ask a question, and we have the whole Q&A section. We're going to do a mailbag episode soon, so get in there and throw a bunch in there. We'll have, probably do those here in the next couple of months. But this Patreon question comes from Lord Danto, who says, what are lesser-known rules for competitive play? For example, I found out from a judge that die counters can't be used to track live totals at sanctioned events. So that's not true anymore. Let's be clear. The rule's gone, along with the no mobile devices. However, you shouldn't do it. And the reason that the judge probably gave you the device is because if you're keeping life total with a dice and your opponent is keeping life total with a pen and paper and they have results tracking life totals and you have a dice, who do you think the judge is going to rule in favor of? The one that tracked it. So while you can do it, it is not a rule that you can't. You should not do it. You should just track life totals. Well, you know, that kind of just brings up the question, like, what are some things that, like, maybe someone who hasn't played in a while or hasn't played, you know, ever, like we talk about all the time on the show, there's like a whole generation of arena players that came up because of the pandemic. They were stuck inside. They needed something to do. What's something that they might not expect to have at an event? And what's the one you would tell them, Spencer? I have two. They both kind of revolve around the same set of rules that I think players don't understand. And it has to be with how match results happen. One of them is bribery, and one of them is determining match results. We recently had a player in Utah who very much was like about to get a draw. Neither player was going to make top eight. Pulled out some dice and was like, let's roll for it. And everyone around the table screamed. I mean, I think we actually talked about this on the podcast where everyone was like, no, 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 you can't do that. But honestly, you can't do that. This is the hard part of magic, and I'm going to be really real with the listener. If you are not favored to win, and if you get the draw, both you and your opponent are not going to top eight, despite however you feel about it, and you don't have to do this, it's common courtesy to be the one to concede. And I promise you that if you do that, eventually it will be paid forward to you. And I know that that sucks. I know it sounds stupid. You can't be out there rolling dice. You can't be out there looking at the top cards of your deck. You are allowed to not do that. You are allowed to just take the draw. But you can't You can't be doing weird things to determine match results. Additionally, you can't offer prizes. You can chop whatever you want whenever you want when you already are guaranteed those prizes. Key that you are already guaranteed those prizes but you can't chop stuff you don't have. So if you're in playing for top eight and you're trying to chop top eight prizes, that's bribery and you will get DQ'd. These are hard things to learn as a magic player because it doesn't make sense to a lot of people, but those are the two that I would give people. Hey, what about you? I have a hard time pinning down like corner cases within the rules. I think it's just really important. And we talked about this when we had Garrison on, who was a great guest for a great episode about the importance of judges and how to make the most of of the judges that you have access to. But I think it is really, really important to know a lot of just basic things that can happen that are mistakes that will happen in games. You know, what happens if you draw an extra card? What happens if uh, there's a life total discrepancy? So that you can know and just stay composed in that situation, which can obviously uh, feel really high leverage Uh, when it comes up and feel like, you know, there's a lot on the line. So you want to make sure, you know, you're representing yourself fairly and you know what it is that's supposed to happen because it really sucks to feel blindsided by a ruling and it can really 
make it hard to focus on playing your best. But if you know a lot of that stuff that you might run into ahead of time, it's something you can really prepare for. And I think as much as I wish there was something where it's like, oh yeah, there's this one rule that I didn't know that you know might help you to know. I would say just spend the time to ask a judge like, hey, what happens if I draw a sideboard card in my opening hand? What happens if I draw it after the game's already started? You know, what are the fixes for these things? So that you can know and not be stressed about them in the moment. You know what the outcome's going to be because there are a lot of, you know, strange things that happen and mistakes that happen in competitive magic. And they're kind of unavoidable, even if you're really meticulous. You, you will make mistakes. You are human. Um, or your opponent will make them. And it will make things go a lot smoother if you already know what is supposed to happen there so that you can make sure it's what happens. It's not really a rule, but it's kind of a rule. It's kind of awkward, but it is, if you mess something up, you should call judge on yourself. And you should not try to hide it. Because if you try to hide it, you will get in much, much bigger trouble than if you just go judge, I look, accidentally saw a card, or I, I dropped something, or we did this wrong. Like, I, well, I think we did this wrong. You should just get the judge involved and come up to it. Because if you try to hide it, that is not good. And that is like actively cheating versus making a mistake. It was like right before the pandemic started. I had a player come up to me and they're like, Spencer, you call the judge on yourself a lot. Like, do you realize how many percentage points you're throwing away? And I was like, no. For one, I'm kind of stupid. So, like, I'm making a lot of mistakes. That's why I'm calling the judge on myself. Two, what do you mean percentage points? Like, that's not how this works at all. I have a sideboard card in my opening hand in game one. Like, that's not throwing away percentage points. That's just me following the rules. Yeah, it's those like, are not percentage points to be gained. Come on, To gain guys. those percentage points is yeah. to cheat. Yeah, like... Yeah. <laughs> that's it for that. Another way to get your qu- uh, a question or something on the show is to go to YouTube... And head over to CCMTG on YouTube, and then you can leave a comment on the last show. We pick one of those, kind of talk about them here. Sometimes there are questions like the last one, sometimes there's general stuff. This week's question comes from Jacob, which was, want to thank you all for the show. Started listening after Mason won DreamHack. The theoretical episodes and the show's own mindset really helped me, and I was able to take down my first RCQ of the season. Congratulations, Jacob. I now maintain an always improving notepad on my phone that I update every Monday. Thank you guys for all you do. That is so awesome. I'm so happy you won your first RCQ. Jacob, that's sweet, and that's awesome that you are taking those sort of steps to hold yourself accountable, even though your grind, quote-unquote, is on hiatus right now, you know, since you have won your RCQ already. This came in a avalanche on the same day for us, guys. And I want to talk about the avalanche really quick. One, I'm really proud of Jacob. I always find it incredibly humbling when somebody gives us credit for their RCQ win or for their success event in any way. But do you guys notice the avalanche of comments last week? Yeah, there's a lot of them. I just want to say, like, for me, maybe I'll just speak to, like, what Jacob said and, and those, that those comments is that, like, I've always said that if, like, one person gets something out of CCMTG, then the whole thing was worth it. I would be lying if I said that after 10 years, one person wasn't too little anymore for me. So having days like we had last week where 10 plus people are coming to us, having months where a hundred plus people are coming to us 
And especially since the resurgence of paper magic, Jacob, you winning this RCQ, that's why we do the show. That's what, that's, that's it. That's the reason. Like, well done. Like we got, we helped somebody win an RCQ this year, guys. Like we did it. I'm trying not to cry, but like, it, it means a lot to me. It makes the tough conversations that we have a co-host worth it. It makes the hours and deciding when we're going to do stuff, how we're going to do it. And the meticulous things that we try to decide on beforehand worth it. It's been really, really awesome for me. There's been a lot of support. I've had people who DM me on, on Twitter, on Discord, and tell me you know how much they're really enjoying the show, how much they're getting out of it. And especially with the return to there being paper magic that people are excited for, which is something that since starting the show, this is new to me. You know, since, since I've come on, I came on, you know, during still the uncertain times of, of the pandemic. And to, to know that what we're doing is really still something that's helping people improve in magic, you know get what they want out of the thing that they're putting their time into and being not only a tool of improvement, but one that's also valuable and entertaining. It has been awesome to feel like all of the weeks where you know, even before Spencer joined the show, where me and Mason would hop on discord to record the show and be like, I mean, what do we even talk about this week? There's nothing happening. Let's find something that we can do. That's helpful. Even if, you know, we know that, people aren't as engaged now as they would be if they're paper to see that people do that. It is just some of that effect and that, you know, people are coming back and seeing and getting a chance to go back and experience all those things that we spent that time recording. If you go back through those, those episodes from last year and from uh, the year before that, I, I think that there's a lot of great stuff in there and to really feel like I'm, all of us are doing a, a really good job of helping people out is really something that, has been relieving to feel because for a long time it kind of felt some days like it was running in a hamster wheel. But getting the, that gratitude from all of you and being able to express it back to you really does make the hours that we spend putting into putting on the show worth it. I concur and agree. And uh, like Abe said, there is a lot. I know we've had a lot of people join recently. The sort of sentiment of like my dream hack stuff and going on game. I know a lot of people. There's been a small burst of people, so if you haven't already checking out the stuff from the last 40 episodes or show, you know, uh, there's a lot of really good stuff in there, even if some of it's, like, as events are just starting to come back, and checking out some of the ones that are maybe less, you know, about the, the thing of the week there, and more bigger picture. There's a lot of content there, and, you know, you got nothing else to do. What are you doing? You're at work right now. You're at work. Your boss is walking by, you know, you type a little bit. Just go, go listen to the episode. Uh, and hopefully it's helpful to you. So, Thank you for that, though, uh, Jacob. It does mean a lot. And congratulations once again. Hopefully, you'll find me in Atlanta. And I can say hello back to you in person. But that is going to do it for this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. You're going to want to make sure to check out the rest of the network. We have Drafting Archetypes with Sam Black. We have Common Knowledge, which is a popper podcast. All things popper there. You want to check out that show not to miss anything. You want to make sure to also, you know, if you like the show, you want to associate some support, but you can't do something like Patreon or whatever. That's all cool. If you want to get back, one way to do that is share with your friends, go like the YouTube videos, leave a review and that sort of stuff. And we love reviews and comments. And especially once, if you don't like what happened, or you don't like something that's really helpful to us. Very often you only get things that you really hate or really like. For example, our new song, I only hear two things about it. I've never heard anyone say their medium about our intro. 
They're like, I love this intro or I hate this intro. And that's, we would like stuff in between. So if you have thoughts and things you like, some things you don't, some things you're medium on, that's great. So that's one way to help us out. And also the algorithm likes and interactions, you know, bigger number, better person. But outside of those things, if someone wanted to find you outside of this podcast, Spencer, where would they go? Uh, you can find me at Spencer13H. You can find me commentating at twitch.tv slash Media for our sponsor at Ganger Lehigh, as well as my own streams. I do plan on streaming again. I had taken a little bit of a break after starting up again, whether it was Lego Star Wars or Valheim or Smash, whatever. I do plan on picking it up again. Um, so check me out there. Additionally, also I've been taking a break from the YouTube channel, but uh, I will be doing a deck tech this week on the Jun Bloodstorm deck for standard, as well as um, finding time with Mace to go over four color before it gets banned. So, yeah, you can find me over at twitter.com slash more nothings. I am still open for some limited slots doing coaching for any and all formats, really. If you want to, you know, pick up your game of Pioneer, Modern, Standard, whatever, I am there to help you out. It's been really, really fun. I also still do a lot of the Hammer Time Central things. I know that Hammer's had a really, really good week uh, the last couple of weeks. And so if you're interested in getting back into into the Hammer Time deck, you've been you've fallen out of things, you want to know what's up, I will help you with that too. But how about you, Mason? Well, I gotta let you know, I've been getting a lot of doing a lot of coaching recently for Four Color, it's been great. And a lot of them was like, oh, my Hammer Time matchup's so worse, I'm seeing it do well in Moto, what is that, what do we do? And that's because people aren't listening enough to me, eh? but those Force of Vigors ain't leaving. I got beat up by you so much, it's my, my Linus blanket, my safety. I keep those Force of Vigors close. So, you know, if you, if you want to go get the session with Abe, and then your friend's doing that, come to me. <laughs> but no, seriously, uh, you can find me each and every week here on the Contrickers and Podcast. You can find me each and every week over at Card Kingdom, writing an article. You can search me at twitch.tv slash Clark. And if you're looking for coaching, you can reach out via my email at masoneclark at gmail.com. Or find me on Twitter. You can DM me there. I have a few slots open still for about, you know, an hour there. So thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Contrickerism. And we'll see you all next week for another episode of CCMTG. Magic, magic, magic.